Let me begin by asking you a question. Can you think of a time when your actions, your behavior, your attitude changed because you knew how things would end? Think of a time when your actions, your behavior, your attitude changed because you knew what the outcome was going to be. Now, as those who know me will know, I am quite a big rugby fan, and I love to go see Scotland play at Murrayfield. And this year, I had the, the joy of being there on that glorious day in February when uh, Scotland finally beat England to lift the Calcutta Cup. Now, I went into that match thinking Scotland did not have a hope of winning that match. I went in completely even keel, completely neutral, knowing that England were going to hammer Scotland. That's how I went into that match. Now, as I was sitting there, I think, and I sat there quite comfortably, quite relaxed, ready to enjoy, hopefully, a good performance by Scotland, but certainly not a winning performance by Scotland. Now, fast forward to half time, and suddenly Scotland have scored three tries and are in quite a convincing lead. The hope inside me begins to build. A nervous energy starts to appear. Are we actually going to do this? Is this going to happen? Is Scotland finally going to lift that Calcutta Cup? The nerves begin to increase. I become more shaky, more anxious. My wife next to me notices a difference in me. I'm saying it's a hope that kills you, but the hope that is rising within me. Now, I don't know how this is going to end. I still expect England to win, but I start to feel hope born inside me. Now, fast forward to the 75th minute where it became very apparent that England were not going to beat Scotland. That Scotland had such a lead by that point that no matter if England scored a try, they were still not going to win that match. My nervous energy started to turn into joyful exuberance. You could feel the stadium around you. The tension began to lift and the joy, the joyful singing of a flower of Scotland ring around the stadium because we knew what the outcome was going to be. Scotland had not yet won the match, but we knew they were going to win that match. Nervous energy, nervous hope turns into an assured hope, an assured joyful exuberance. That was a time when I knew the outcome and I spotted my actions begin to change. So can you think of that time when your actions, behavior, attitude changed because you knew how things were end? It might not be a sporting match. It could be if you read a book or watched a film many, many times, you know it's going to end. So your, your attitude going to it has changed. It could be maybe when you're, I don't know, there's many things that it could be that you know the outcome of it so you know, so your actions begin to change. You live in light of that fast approaching outcome. Now let me ask you this. When was the last time you considered your future as a Christian? When was the last time you considered your future your eternity as someone who is in Christ Jesus, who has confessed your sins and repented of your sins to Jesus and run to him for the forgiveness of sins, I now live in light of eternity that is yours in Christ. When was the last time you focused on the world that is to come? When was the last time you considered how our final destination as God's children, as people who have been bought by the blood of Jesus, would impact how we live today? Have you ever thought about how your future should impact your presence? C.S. Lewis comments in Mere Christianity that as Christians, we ought to be looking forward to the eternal world to come. And Lewis looked across history and he noticed that the Christians who had the biggest impact on the world were those whose eyes were fixed upon eternity. Read this quote with me. If you read history, 
you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. He had in his mind the apostles, the uh, William Wilberforce to uh, managed to abolish slavery, these kind of people. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world, they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, you'll get neither. The principle behind these words is that knowing our final destination, knowing of our certainty and our citizenship in heaven of the world to come, ought to make a great impact on how we live our lives of faith in the present. I wonder if as followers of Jesus, especially in 21st century Western society, that we might have become a bit complacent in our faith, a bit lackluster. I wonder if that's because we have lost sight of our future glorified states. We've become so focused on the temporary things of this world, the, the jobs, the cars, the money, the comfort, the luxuries that we enjoy here, that we forget the bigger picture, that we forget the eternity that's still to come. So over these next three sermons over the evening, this series, we're going to start to form an overall picture of the hope that we have in Christ. We're going to start to consider our eternity as followers of Jesus and how that should impact our lives now. We want to see the bigger picture and help, and help us to put the temporary things of this life into the right perspective. We're going to be living in the light of eternity. And tonight, we're going to look particularly at the incompatible glory that is ours in Christ Jesus. Next week, if you come back, we're going to be looking at the future bodily resurrection that is ours in Christ Jesus. And then in two weeks' time, we're going to look at the new creation in Revelations 21 and 22. But tonight, we're going to focus on the incompatible glory and how it should affect living in the light of eternity. So turn back to me to Romans chapter 8. If you close your Bibles, open them again. Come back to Romans chapter 8. Now, as Callum helpfully put in context for us, uh, Paul begins this chapter uh, with this great proclamation that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 1, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That is a gospel in a nutshell. That is the good news about Jesus Christ. That through Jesus, we've been set free from the law of sin and death. We now no longer live under God's wrath. We now live under his grace. And Paul goes on to say that we now become God's children. And as God's children, we're in line to share in the inheritance of his son, Jesus Christ. Read in the uh, verse 17 again. Now, if we are God's children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. However, as co-heirs with Christ... Paul tells us we must first share in the sufferings of Christ in order to share in his glory. Read on in verse 17. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Paul is very clear here. In order for us to share in his glory, what is to come, we must first share in the sufferings of Christ, what is now. And the big question that should be on our minds, is the suffering worth it? Is the glory that awaits us as children of God worth the suffering we must face now? Is it worth it? Now, depending on how you answer that question is going to depend on how you act. If you come to say, no, it's not worth it, then you will very easily fall away from the faith in Jesus Christ. You will not share in your sufferings because that glory is not worth it. 
It's not worth the pain, the heartache, the persecution, the suffering that you'll face in order to get to the glory. If you answer yes, well then you will gladly share in Christ's suffering because you know that what's coming is far better. So how does Paul answer this question? Is this suffering worth it? We're coming to verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. What a big statement to make. I consider, having thought about it, reflected on about it, come to a measured, thoughtful conclusion, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, it's important to point out here, Paul is not speaking as someone who has never suffered. Paul is speaking as someone who has suffered a lot, very easily more than most of us sitting here tonight. If you want a list of Paul's sufferings, just go to 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul tells us how many times he's been in prison, he's been flogged, exposed to death, he's received the 40 lashes minus one, five times, three times beaten with rods, pelted with stones, three times shipwrecked, spent a night and day in open sea, constantly in the movies, in danger from rivers, bandits, fellow Jews, Gentiles in the city, in the country, at sea, in danger from false believers. He's labored, toiled, and gone without sleep. He's been hungry, thirsty, gone without food. He's been cold and naked. <laughs> you can't read that and think that Paul got off life lightly. This is a boy who suffered. And yet here he says in verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You see, what Paul has done here, he's taken some scales, some old-fashioned scales used to get. I've got a picture of it here. And he's taken the weight of suffering and compared it with the weight of glory. He's taken the weight of suffering and he's compared it with the weight of the glory that will be revealed in us. So let's explore both these points and see if Paul's conclusion is right. Is our present sufferings not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Go to the next slide there. So let's first of all look at the weight of suffering. Now God's word is very honest. It tells us that as Christians we are going to suffer. Not one of us is immune from it. Why? Well Paul tells us because we live in a fallen creation. Look with me at verse 20. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. You see, Paul tells us in here that creation has been subjected to frustration. In other words, creation as we experience it now is not how God intended it to be. It's not how God designed it to be when he created the, all the universe. In fact, we read back, way back in Genesis that God created creation to be very good. And creation was intended to display God's glory perfectly and wonderfully and awesomely. But since then, it's become subjected to frustration. So that it's now under the bondage of decay. Verse 21, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. In other words, we live in a world where there's now decay. We live in a world where there's now suffering. We live in a world where there's now death. That is the reality of how we live today. There's death in creation. Why? Well, again, go back to Genesis. Just after God created the whole earth, we read of man's rebellion against God as the creator. 
We read that Adam and Eve rejected God as king over all of creation, including themselves. And that's what Bible calls sin. And it's because we sinned that not only was our relationship with God frustrated, but also our relationship with creation has been frustrated as well. This physical world now has disease, natural disasters, brokenness, decay, and death. And until this curse of sin has been fully reversed and creation fully restored, creation will always be subject to frustration. There's always going to be suffering in this present world. We will always experience suffering all because of our rebellion against God, because of our sin. That's what the Bible tells us. That's what God's words teaches us. Now, anyone who tells you that because you're a Christian, you should not experience any suffering in your life. They are false teachers. That is not the gospel. That is not what God's word teaches us. It is not the case that if we suffer, then therefore we lack faith. That is bad theology. That is dangerous theology. See, the Bible teaches that as Christians, we should not expect an easy life. We should not expect an easygoing life filled with money and possessions, with no opposition, where everyone loves us. In fact, the Bible tells us the opposite. You see, the suffering Paul's got in mind here is not only this general suffering we face living in a fallen world, but it's also the suffering we face as followers of Jesus. See, verse 17, we share in the sufferings with Christ. Christ, the one who was rejected by his own people. Christ, the one who died a humiliating, scandalous, painful death on the cross. That's the sufferings Paul has in mind here. See, as Christians, we do not have an easy life. In fact, we have a life, we should expect the life of suffering. Look at how Paul describes suffering in verse 35. He describes it as trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Paul is using very strong terms here to describe suffering. This is the reality of living in a fallen world. This is the reality of being a follower of Jesus. Anyone who tells you otherwise does not know his Bible. This is reality for Christians. Now, I doubt I have to convince any of you here tonight of this suffering. There is no doubt in my mind that we have all experienced suffering in one way or the other. Indeed, there'll be those here tonight who when they place their suffering upon that scale, it just seems to plummet under the weight. God's word is very honest. God's word is it tells us to expect that. And God's word never diminishes that suffering, but it does place it in its right perspective. God's word lifts our eyes above the mire of our suffering to the greater incomparable glory that overwhelms our suffering. So let's explore now the weight of glory that will be revealed in us. See this comfort that we have in this passage to help us put the suffering we face in this fallen world and as Christians into its right perspective. Read again with me, verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You see, Paul has reached this conclusion because his eyes are not fixed upon his sufferings. His eyes are not fixed upon the temporary things of his world. His eyes are not fixed on what's around him. His eyes are fixed upon eternity and the incomparable glory that awaits. 
What is this glory? What we saw earlier in verse 17, this glory is one that we will share with Christ. Verse 18, we read that this is a glory that will be revealed in us. In other words, this is not a glory that we will merely see. This is a glory that's going to be seen in us, that will be revealed in us. Just think about that for a moment. The glory that we share with Jesus Christ, God's Son, the one who's been exalted to the highest place at the right hand of God the Father, <laughs> that is the glory that's going to be revealed in us. That's incredible, isn't it? Can we think about that? Just, just for a moment, think about that. God's glory is going to be revealed in you. You're not just going to see God's glory, you're going to be radiating God's glory because of Christ Jesus, because you're a new creation in him. This weighty, eternal glory is going to be seen in us. No wonder Paul describes us as a glory that is incomparable. <laughs> we were looking at this morning, about this morning, of the awesome nature of God, the holiness of God, who is an all-consuming fire. This glory that we share in Christ Jesus is going to be revealed in us. When will this glory be revealed? Will it be revealed to the whole universe? It'll be, it's when we are revealed to the whole universe as God's children. Come to verse 19. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. We will participate in this divine glory when we finally and fully revealed as God's children. God's children who in glory experience our true freedom. Come to me, verse 21. Creation's waiting in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. There's coming a day when creation will be brought into the freedom that it will be ours as God's children, that is ours as God's children. An eternal freedom from the bondage of decay, from death and from suffering. No wonder this creation is longing in eager expectation for this day to arrive. Look at verse 19. For the creation waits in eager expectation. That literally means like a, a craning of the neck. Do you know when you're a kid or something, you're in a big crowd, you want to see what's going on. You stand on your tiptoes and you crane your neck to try and see uh, kings going past or celebrities or a parade going past you. You're eagerly trying to find it, look for it. That's what creation is doing here. It's eagerly waiting for this day to arrive when God's children will be revealed and when they will be brought into the freedom and glory of God's children. In verse 22, Paul keeps going with this eager, longing, anticipation language. He illustrates it with childbirth. Come to verse 22. We know that the whole of creation has been groaning under this weight of suffering as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Um, Last, my, my daughter is now seven months old today and I was there when she was born seven months ago and I'm so glad I'm a guy. <laughs> I'm so grateful and thankful and love my wife all the more for bearing this child because she suffered. <laughs> the gas in there worked. The, epi, the, epi, what they called, the epidural? That thing sticking your back? The epidural is great help but boy do they suffer. But what was it that kept Abby and my wife going through all that suffering and pain? the thought of our daughter coming out the end of it, the joy end of it. And that's how Paul describes creation here. See, just as a mother experiences suffering in the present, 
It is done in the hope of the joy of the birth of that baby. So too does creation undergo suffering in the hope of this freedom that will be theirs when the children of God is revealed, of this incomparable glory that is yet to come. You see, we will experience this glory and freedom because we have been adopted as God's children. And when we're adopted as God's children, and because, as we're adopted as God's children, we're also fully transformed as the people who have been conformed to the image of Christ. Turn with me quickly to verse 29. We are jumping about here, but I want to see how this all fits together. So verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That is to be made like Christ, who is perfect in every way. You see, instead of being a people who is uh, burdened by the weight of our sin, we're going to be people who has been made perfect in Christ. That is the eternity that waits for us. <laughs> Where sin will no longer have power of a hold of us, we will no longer be able to sin because we will be in Christ Jesus. We will be changed from mortals burdened with sin to immortals who has a direct, unhindered access to God's presence. There is coming a time when this root cause of suffering will be no more. When God's people will be conformed to the image of Christ, unable to sin anymore. When God will renew all things and bring God's children and creation into this freedom, this freedom from decay, freedom from death, freedom from suffering. That is a day that's coming. That is eternity, brothers and sisters, that is a reality for us. That is an eternity that is coming. Keep going with this train of thought when looking at redemption here from verse 29. So you be conformed to him as your son. Uh, verse 30. And those he predestined to be conformed to him as your son, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also what? Glorified. The end point of our redemption. The final stage. Glorified with this incomparable glory we read in verse 18. Notice with me, it's Glorified. Paul's speaking here of a future event, but he describes it in the past tense. Why does he do that? Is that just bad English? No, it's deliberate. He says it's glorified because it is as good as done. Although this lies in the future and eternity for us, our glorification is as good as happened. Why? Because God says so. And when God says something that's going to happen, it is going to happen. It is as good as done. See, if you're a follower of Jesus here tonight, you've been set free from sin and death and you are going to be glorified no matter what you face in this life. See, one day you're going to arrive at this final destination where you will live in this glorious freedom, this freedom from your suffering, free from sin, free from frustration, free from death itself, and nothing is going to prevent this from happening. Absolutely nothing. That's what Paul tells us from verse 31 onwards, doesn't he? He describes what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? No one. Why? Because it's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? There's no one because Christ Jesus died. More than that, was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble? Hardship? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Danger? 
as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered sheep to be slaughtered in this present world. Shall that separate us? No. No. Nothing is going to separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing is going to get in the way of you coming to that point of glorification if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. (laughs) That is the joy of the gospel, isn't it? That as we experience the rubbishness of this fallen world, as we go through the cancer diagnosis, the miscarriages, as we go through the loss of our loved ones, as we are persecuted for what we believe in, as we're ostracized by our friends and family, we can hold on to this hope, but none of that is going to get in the way of our glorification. None of that is going to stop God from glorifying us in Christ in eternity. None of that is going to stop us getting to that final destination where we will experience none of that rubbishness anymore, when we will be able to enjoy a creation that is fully redeemed and no longer fallen, but as God intended it to be. Our final destination is not this world. It's not the broken, fallen creation. It's not the suffering we face. Our final destination is glorification as children of God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, he describes his troubles as light and momentary. For they are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Basically what he says in verse 18. See, Paul has his eyes firmly fixed on this reality as a follower of Jesus. So then, how should we then live in light of this glorious eternity? Well, like creation, we should wait in eager expectation for this day. Come to verse 23. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that's seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. See, we are called to patiently wait for this day in hope. Um, hope here, when we read hope, we tend to think of like a desire or wish, like we, we hope it will not rain, or we hope that Scotland beat England. But biblical hope is not this. Biblical hope expresses a confidence and a certainty. Uh, Graham Benyon says this in his book, um, First Things Last, Uh, Last things first, sorry. It says this. Living in hope is not wishing that the future will take a certain shape, but living knowing what it will look like. Living in hope is not wishing that the future will take a certain shape, but living knowing what it will look like. Remember verse 30, glorified, past tense? We know what our future is. We know what the hope we have. We have the certainty This sure hope that we are going to be glorified. Brothers and sisters, we live today certain of our future. Certain of our future glorified state in Christ. We're going to be free from this suffering, free from sin. And that hope must impact how we live today. You see, that certain hope means that in our suffering, in this fallen world, we groan, not in despair, but in hope. Certain, sure hope. We know that this suffering is temporary. 
we know that the glory to come is eternal. It helps us to put our suffering into its right perspective. That the prospect of glory should overwhelm that suffering. Now, this does not mean that our present sufferings will become easier as such. It doesn't mean they become any less painful, certainly not. But it does mean that our life on this earth is not determined nor defined by these sufferings. It reminds us that this will come to an end, that we have a greater sure hope and a greater, better life to come. The glory that we share in Christ Jesus, which is forever. So we groan, not in despair, but groan in a sure hope. Secondly, it means that we can now prefer Christ's cross to the world's crown. It's what Thomas Boston described it as, preferring Christ's cross to the world's crown. In other words, we will prefer the sufferings of Christ to all that the world can give us. The world's crown may well lead to temporary glory, but Christ's cross is a guarantee of an eternal glory in the next. said earlier, I think too often we become too fixated upon the temporary things around us. We long for the fame, the money, the fortune, the jobs, the wife, the relationship, the husband, the spouse, or whatever it is. We long for what the world has to offer rather than preferring the, Christ, the cross of Christ because our eyes are too fixated upon what is seen and not on this eternal glory that is unseen, that is ours in Christ Jesus. You see, we could also add another thing to verse 18 where Paul says that I consider my present sufferings not worth comparing. We could also put, I consider that all the great things of this world, all the good stuff, the car, the money, the job, the spouse, the relationship, the exam results are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You see, preferring Christ's cross before the world's crown means that we can say, yes, I love and enjoy these good things. These are good things to enjoy, but they are nothing compared to what is to come in the next. Just as we go, our suffering is rubbish, it's painful, it's hard, it's tough, but that is nothing compared to the glory that I'm going to experience in the next. You see, this preference of preferring Christ's cross to the world's crown will strengthen the believer who's facing a long prison sentence in a strict Islamic country. It will strengthen the man who's watched his family and friends being executed for professing faith in Christ. It will strengthen the Christian who's been publicly attacked for holding to the Bible's teaching. It will strengthen those who are ostracized at school, at work, at friends and family for believing in Jesus. We prefer Christ's cross to the world's crown, knowing that glory to come is incomparable to anything we experience here on earth. Prefer Christ's cross to the world's crown. Third thing means we can take greater risks for the gospel. I think too often because we, by the way, I am speaking to myself, I keep saying you, I am speaking to myself, by the way, that I think too often I'm more focused on my relationship with my friends, that I do not want to give that up by coming across as a weirdo because I ask them what one question you've got for God. Or because I don't tell them about Jesus Christ because I don't want to get in the relationship. I don't want them to think bad of me. I think I'm weird or wacky or just to fall out with me. But knowing that the glory to come, knowing that even if they do think I'm weird and wacky and do never speak to me again, I know that the glory to come is far, it's more incom- it's incompatible to the relationship I have with these people. So it allows to take greater risk for the gospel, for the glory of God and also for their sake as well. See, any time that we do put our relationships above, well, 
where we fail to teach people, tell people about Jesus, we are putting our relationship with them above their own eternal destination. Because if they have not come to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, they are not facing this, they're not going to have hope in this glory that we've just been speaking about. Instead, they are facing an horrific eternity. Cut off from God forever that you would never wish on your worst enemy. If you're not a follower of Jesus here tonight, can I encourage you to think more about who Jesus is and his claims and his gospels? I'd love to speak to you more about that because this glory I've been speaking of, you do not have this assured hope. That's what God's word teaches us. If you've not come to Jesus for the gifts of your sins, you do not have this assured hope and glory. I said you are facing an eternity cut off with him. <laughs> for the suffering of this world is not comparable to the suffering of that world to come. Please do speak to me if that's you. I'd love to tell you more about the joy of Jesus Christ. But taking great risk for the gospel, it will enable us to give up these well-paid, secure jobs to reach people in deprived areas. It will enable us to share the gospel in cultures that are violently hostile to Christianity. It will enable us to gladly sacrifice all for Christ and knowledge that what we have in this world pales into insignificance compared to what we have in glory. It will enable us to tell our friends and family about Jesus. <laughs> to go in the street and tell people about Jesus. Our work colleagues about Jesus. As we fare Christ's cross to the world's crown. And as we groan in our suffering, not in despair, but in hope. Can you see how looking forward impacts our life today? How looking forward to the eternity that we have in Christ Jesus impacts how we live our life of faith in this present world. And we're called to live in the light of eternity. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Let's pray together.